everyone. Welcome to another episode around the fire on Spirit Reflections. My name is Fred Govea, and if you're here for the first time, Spirit Reflections is an ongoing conversation series in English and Portuguese about people's personal and spiritual journeys, the tools that they found along the way, and how those tools shaped who they are and the work that they do today. We interview artists, philosophers, scientists, and religious people of all backgrounds to understand a little bit more about themselves and in the process, get to know ourselves. So please like and subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on Spotify, and leave your comments below on which guests and topics you'd like us to go deeper here around the fire. And today's conversation is going to be with Dan Cohen. We've had we've had him before, and if you'd like to see the full interview of the first episode we did, we did with Dan Cohen about his own personal and spiritual journey and how he got to family constellations and the alchemical constellations that he's been doing for many years with his partner, Emily, take a look at the video. The link is below in the description. But for today's topic, we're going to jump right to it and talk about perpetrator and victims. So in conflicts of wars and family conflicts, who is the victim? Who is the real perpetrator? And how did Bert Hellinger in his work observe this dynamics between perpetrators and victims? And how can we gain some understanding about what's happening in the world today through the lens of family constellations as Dave observed how perpetrators and victims behave? So. Type your comments below, ask your questions, and we'll make sure to answer them in a future episode. And now, without further ado, welcome, Dan. Hey, uh, welcome, Fred. Good to uh, be here. I really appreciate uh, this opportunity. It's uh, always great talking to you. Likewise, Dan. Thank you so much. So let's get right to it. We're in 2023, in November, uh, when this is being recorded. War has broken out in the Middle East, Israel, Hamas, Ukraine, and so many places in the world are seeing conflicts. And I just wanted to ask you point blank, how do you see perpetrator victims in these conflicts with your understanding in family constellations that you've gained? Well, I think the, the key insight that I took from uh, Bert Hellinger when I first came into contact with Family Constellations at a time when I was really looking for a missing tool. I had been worked as a peace activist and a social activist for about 20 years and had done so many things. I'd worked in the inner cities uh, in the United States. I had walked through the West Bank and lived in Bethlehem on the West Bank in Palestine as a Jewish peacemaker. I had traveled to Germany and I had brought groups of Jewish American and German teenagers to, together and done <coughs> different types of peace uh, activism practices with young people and had participated in political forums and educational forums and done different types of spiritual work and uh, traced the religious traditions, both of the Western religions and the Eastern religions. And at the end of this 20 year cycle, the peace process in uh, between Israel and Palestine, which I had been so devoted to, uh, just completely fell apart uh, around 2000, 2001. It came to a dead stop and has never really been revived over the last 20 years. And this was the time as that was unfolding that I recognized that there needed to be a different tool. There had to be some other way of picking up the other end of the stick of looking for what were the dynamics in these conflicts that made them so uh, difficult to resolve and so easy to just repeat 
uh, in generation after generation. And so I was looking and I came across the work of Family Constellations and Bert Hellinger. And when I read uh, the seminal work that Bert Hellinger had written, Love's Hidden Symmetry, right at the beginning, there's a sentence that says that the worst atrocities and injustices are committed by people acting in good conscience. And he spoke about guilt and innocence, the feelings that we have inside, and that a feeling of innocence and righteousness in a way is the license to commit a violence and uh, atrocities against others. That from a position of innocence, we're willing to do to someone else uh, what would otherwise be abhorrent to us. And we can see this in divorce proceedings, in marriages. We see this between parents and children. We see this in uh, social situations or societal situations, in communities, in the way people vote. And then, of course, also in large national conflicts that um, the tendency to defend one's position, to claim innocence, is itself the igniter of violence against others. So right in the beginning of Love's Hidden Symmetry, the seminal work by Bert Hellinger, you saw this passage where he comments between guilty conscience versus innocent conscience. And for the sake of wanting to belong, we will defend our innocence by basically repeating what our ancestors have done for the sake of belonging to them, even though it might be wrong, but as long as we are emulating and repeating that, we stay innocent because we continue to belong. Is there is that part of it as well? Yes, it is. This this innocence generates a feeling of belonging, and when we belong, automatically that means there's somebody else that doesn't belong. That often the ones that don't belong become a threat to us, or we perceive what they're doing as uh, wrong. Uh, or bad or something that we need to defend ourselves from. And we, we see, uh, we can see them through our own eyes, but we cannot see ourselves through their eyes because we have excluded them uh, mm -hmm. in a way that they are outside the circle of our belonging. And so these cycles of, of the ones who are uh, attacked and the ones who become the attackers uh, they just keep rotating around. So the the Germans after one World War One felt that they were the victims, and so they become the perpetrators in the next generation. Uh, the um, the uh, Israeli Jews, many of whom were the victims in the generation of the Holocaust, then become uh, the perpetrators against the Palestinians in the next generation. And this repeats on the personal level and the family level, as well as on the collective level. And how does that play out in an actual constellation group session, as observed by Bert Hellinger when he first saw the dynamics unfolding in his observations? Oh, I mean, this one of the simplest uh, illustrations of it is that if a if a married person would sit down next to him and complain about their partner, their spouse, uh, Hellinger would always uh, take the side of the spouse. Uh, in a way, when, whenever someone claims that they are the victim of someone else, 
he would always kind of show sympathy towards whoever was being accused. Um, so an example, uh, someone might say, oh, my, um, my father was an alcoholic and he abandoned the family when I was three years old. And my mother raised us heroically as a single mother. And Hellinger would say, oh, poor father, poor, poor father. And then would set up a constellation that would reveal that the father in one sense abandoned the family and in another sense, he had no chance with his wife and that he was actually uh, driven out. Uh, and then she gets to make up the story of what happened. He's not there. He's gone. And so the story is he was a drunk who abandoned the family. And this is what the daughter knows. And in her heart, she also secretly belongs or unconsciously belongs to her father as well. So she both has the, the, her mother's story, but she is also in a hidden way, sympathetic, uh, to her father. So Hellinger's words, a poor, poor father, actually touch her heart, touch the place where she has that same feeling, but it's it's kind of buried underneath the story of her mother's innocence, that her mother did no wrong, that she was the, the good mother, the, the good wife, and he was the drunk and he ran off. Right. Uh, That's Just like a, a, a one-dimensional aspect to the characters. She's the victim, the drunk father is the perpetrator, and that's that, right? Right. And so he would always, that's just an illustration of it. But anytime that arose in any form, he's always interested in finding the strength in acknowledging one's own guilt, that the, that the movement towards peace is not to say, oh, these, uh, these are the bad people. They, they attacked us. They, they are immoral or they'll, they'll do anything to us. Uh, but to recognize one's own role as a perpetrator in the the situation, to be able to stand with one's own guilt and responsibility and the consequences of our action. And this opens up a whole realm of possibility that's not available when we're in the narrow bind of simply defending our own innocence as the ones who did no wrong. Right. And you also ex- experienced that in your own work in the Massachusetts a prison that was the basis of your book, I Carry You in My Heart, which, by the way, we also have the link below on how you can get it on Amazon, both in English and Portuguese. And I remember reading it. There's many uh, afternoons that you spent there with the inmates where the perpetrator victim dynamic played out in the inmates family. And you were able to step in with the representatives and find resolutions or different ways of looking at it. Does any particular moment of those periods that you spent there come to mind to illustrate this? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, um, you know, most of the, they, the, the men that I worked with were uh, very receptive to recognizing their own guilt. It was one of the the benefits for me of working with a prison group is I, I wasn't working amongst people who were kind of the really good people who had done no wrong. Right. Um, we had, uh, you know, situations where people wanted to 
face a representative of the person that they had killed. Uh, there's a there's a story in the book of um, one of the men, Billy Simpson, who had uh, been involved in a in a uh, murder. He hadn't uh, committed the act, but it, he was a drug addict and uh, was uh, robbing a bar uh, at closing time. And he was guarding the door and the um, his partner in crime uh, stabbed the um, the bartender to death. It was supposed to be a robbery, but it turned into a robbery murder. They were both caught. And in those circumstances, even though uh, Billy wasn't, uh, uh, didn't uh, actually attack uh, the bartender, he is convicted as, as if he had and was sentenced to life uh, without the possibility of parole. And he, we did a, a process for him uh, where he was able to come into uh, contact uh, with the um, uh, with this bartender and and really take on uh, the the feeling of his own guilt and responsibility. And he devoted himself to being a a, a peaceful person from from then on because he always felt. Uh, the the victim with him and and the victim's message to him was no more victims uh, that the way that he could best uh, hold his uh, sense of responsibility was to keep the victim with him in such a way that there were no more victims and he actually told a story about uh, an earlier time but years before I met him when he was a different facility. Uh, where some of the inmates had uh, planned to do a, a, uh, uh, an escape um, and they were going to uh, uh, attack the, uh, the guards and they were going to try to make a break for it. And Billy wanted nothing to do with it. He just hid out in his room. Uh, he was on his cot and he heard all the commotion going and the, uh, uh, the, the yelling and the violence occurred and he heard uh, one of the uh, corrections officers screaming, help, help, uh, as he was being attacked. And in that moment, Billy felt the victim of his crime with him, the presence mm -hmm. of the man that he had killed. And it was almost as if he had been forced out of bed by the spirit of this man to go save the life of the correction officer. And he resisted it momentarily, but the, the force was so strong, you must do something. And so he got out of the, his bed and left his room and pulled uh, the other inmates uh, off of this guard and, and, uh, uh, and saved the man's life. And, and this was an example of how uh, being close to the, the, the victim as his perpetrator actually served him to be a peacemaker. Got it. In, in a way, he's, he's redeeming his own conscience of that act to himself by following that obeying that strength that it was as if it came from the spirit of the victim themselves calling him to prevent another murder right right and if he had if he had excluded that victim if he had been in the stance of well i didn't do it my 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 partner in crime he was the one that killed him we were just going to do a robbery I didn't mean to do it. It wasn't my fault that that actually weakens him and, and, and puts him in this kind of narrow band of, of helplessness where he doesn't, he loses his agency to act. But in this case, even though he hadn't 
committed the violence, but he created the situation. He went into that situation with this person, knowing what they were doing, and he took full responsibility for it. That brings the victim close, and that allows the victim-perpetrator bond to serve him, to be able to uh, do things uh, as a peacemaker, an impossibility that wouldn't uh, wouldn't be possible in the other scenario. Got it. I was told once of a story that Bert Hellinger visited Fordham University in New York, and he did a workshop about perpetrator victims, and he asked people to come from the audience to stand in as representatives of the victims and perpetrators of the Holocaust. And after a while, they simply stood in one line facing each other, and they just convulsed in the tears and hugged one another. And I wonder if you observed anything similar in live workshops that you were that you facilitated um, regarding the Holocaust and, and this period in history. I did. I actually I, I was the um, the event organizer for that. Uh, okay. All yeah, right. we're talking that event to the right person then <laughs> at at Fordham. Uh, but I'll tell I'll tell you of, a, of another situation which uh, really stands out to me, which was in. Uh, Stockholm, I did a workshop and it, um, there were a number of, of, um, uh, Swedish Jews were there who had come from the white buses. They were, had been rescued during the war as children and resettled in Sweden. And they had grown up there and that these were the children of, of those Holocaust survivors and other Swedes. And there were, uh, some Germans and there were some, um, uh, uh, some people of Arab descent that were there. And so it was quite a mixed group. And we did this um, timeline uh, where we kind of went back. I put in a representative for Moses and I put in a representative uh, of, I can't remember them all, but for the sources of, of Islam and Christianity. And then we brought forward Judaism and Christianity and Islam. And I moved representatives in front and we ended up with a representative for, at the time of the Holocaust, of uh, the ovens of Auschwitz. And we had a representative for uh, Judaism and a representative for Nazism. And they stood behind the representative for the ovens of Auschwitz, the, the uh, uh, gas chambers and the crematorium. And in that place, uh, the Jewish representative was um, the victim, uh, weak and defenseless and uh, innocent. And the representative for Nazism uh, was the perpetrator, uh, militaristic, violence, hateful, uh, very easy, willing to kill. And they, they faced each other in this kind of uh, death stare. And then I had to move forward and stand in the crematorium at Auschwitz. So they actually stood in the fires and then they stepped out and they came to post-war Judaism and post-war uh, Germany. And it was as if the fires in Auschwitz were an alchemical fire transformation. And Judaism that came out had acquired some of the qualities of Nazism. 
It was militaristic. Mm. It was um, thick skinned and, uh, and defended. It, it took the trigger end of the gun. It had this sense that we are no longer going to look down the barrel end. We're not going to look into the barrel of a gun. We're going to be holding the trigger, the business end of the gun. Uh, And we won't put that down again. And we will uh, do whatever it takes uh, to protect itself. They had become steel. And the representative for Germany that came through was a pacifist, was compassionate, was soft, nonviolent. Um, and had somehow been melted uh, in those fires. And when you look at at modern Germans or or modern Germany, uh, it's kind of reflective of people who are uh, kind of bend over backwards to be kind and understanding and inclusive of everybody. And anything that that hints, any slight smell of, of Nazism, they turn and reject like immediately. And so these, these fires had been in a way alchemical fires where the, um, the victims of one generation became the perpetrators of the next and the perpetrators of one generation became the, um, not exactly victims, but the innocent ones. Right. Uh, very, uh, very careful to always maintain a position of innocence, to do no harm. And, uh, you know, we see that, um, uh, you know, we see playing out in the Middle East where, uh, you know, Germany took the most of the Syrian refugees. They they took several million Syrian refugees. They just felt like we just have to open our doors. We can't uh, uh, reject uh, those the victims of 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 that war. Uh, And of course, you know, the Israelis are the toughest kid on the block Uh, and. And unfortunately, today they are uh, in a revenge, uh, vengeance killing mode where they are, um, you know, wrecking destruction on uh, on the ones who attack them. They are uh, doing a, you know, big time 10x payback uh, for, for what's been done for them, but uh, also uh, so staunchly defended. Uh, it's been very difficult for them to find a movement towards any kind of resolution of this conflict. So if of case it keeps, of course, it will keep erupting uh, until it finds a resolution. So the bonding of victim and perpetrator in the heart allows for conflict to be resolved or at least lessened to some extent, right? Yes, if if the... there There's a way that the... Um, that as this process occurs of innocence victims in one generation to uh, guilty perpetrators of the next, that that the guilty perpetrators of the next are taking out their violence against people who didn't commit the original crime. They're, they're taking vengeance. Uh, so in a way, the Palestinians are standing in for the Germans, for the Nazis. And so they are receiving the punishment that accrued from the Holocaust experience. The the resolution is to really allow ourselves to bring in the consciousness of the ancestral field, uh, just as my friend Billy did when he had the consciousness of the one who had died. 
the one the message of the one who died is no more victims and so in a place of innocence uh the, and the thing is the palestinians are doing the same thing because their grandparents were displaced in 1948 so it it's not so so simple or one-sided because right. the palestinians are also cling, clinging to their innocence and defending their grandparents and wanting justice for their grandparents, the same as the Israelis are looking to the Holocaust and defending their grandparents. In a constellation, we would bring in the representatives for those ancestrals and really activate the ancestral field. So in my orientation, these aren't just role players. They're not just kind of showing us from a systemic view, the, the ley lines, but we can actually work with ancestral consciousness and receive insight and messages from these past generations. And they are seeking resolution. What they want most is uh, for peaceful life, ordinary life to be able to continue. They are very rarely still engaged or enraged in these cycles of uh, revenge and an attack. They really want uh, a peaceful resolution. So if we can uh, work with those an that ancestral consciousness, uh, it actually uh, creates an, an alchemy in the heart of the individual where the traumas of the past generations get transformed in the heart to nourishment for the next generation. So the activation of the ancestral field is so that the current players in this role of the conflict can tune in or receive from their ancestors that they are trying to avenge many times the uh, wisdom and the information that they can download in their hearts today so that they can see whoever they are fighting against as also a reflection of themselves and hopefully in that movement bring greater peace and empathy in their hearts so that they, the weapons can be put down and the dialogue can resume somehow, right? Right. I mean, I have, I've had this recurring image of, uh, of the Israelis pouring in ambulances and doctors and nurses into Gaza right now, uh, withdrawing their troops and, and activating their uh, very um, robust um, uh, medical infrastructure and just sending you know, convoys of ambulances and medical supplies right. and doctors and nurses uh, into Gaza City and to start to tend uh, to the wounded. And uh, uh, what, you know, what would that do? What, what would that do uh, to this whole uh, situation if, uh, uh, if Israelis and Palestinians, instead of shooting bullets at each other, uh, we're actually uh, joining together to to bandage uh, right. the wounds and to save the children and to, uh, and the mothers who are uh, suffering so badly. Uh, of course, it's a fantasy. It's not about to happen. But in in my mind, I see these uh, uh, a convoy of ambulances and medical uh, supplies coming from Israel into Gaza. And and uh, what would that look like? And. If you had no limitations, and if if you had Bert Hellinger's uh, spirit here present amongst us, seeing this, observing what's going on, 
Well, what do you think he would do? Would would setting up a massive constellation with people uh, physically and in virtually somehow would it contribute through a type of resonance to the, the situation, or is that <laughs> well, fantasy? Well, it's a great question. I mean, Bert was not a was not a peacemaker. He didn't really believe in peace. Uh, oh, really? He, he yeah, he didn't. He said war is the father of all things, which is an old quote from Greek philosophy, uh, he would just say that this, the force of the war is a greater force and that these wars happen and that, um, uh, that the peacemaker is, um, it's a childish fantasy to think that, uh, wars, uh, uh, will not occur that, that like people, magical thinking, right. That people fight around borders uh, that it's always about borders. And as long as the border is not settled, there's going to be a war. And this is a place where uh, the borders have not been settled. Uh, any place in the world where there are people and there's not a border, uh, it's an invitation to war. And he feels that the, he felt like war is uh, intrinsic to human behavior and that there will always be wars and that, uh, he didn't. Uh, he didn't really subscribe as much to peacemaking as I do. I don't. Uh, uh, I'm not on the same page as him in every way. Uh, so uh, I still have. You know, I still hold in my mind. I hold some fantasies about what I would like to do. Uh, but I also, in a sense, that uh, having uh, it's been 40 years since I lived in Bethlehem, and and here we are. So I recognize that the vision that I had is uh, has not manifested that uh, the opposite of what I wished for is what's happening. And I, I feel like I need to respect that a little bit, that my ideas are not, uh, they're not carrying the day. Um, so, and, um, and, and perhaps that might stem from that uh, quandary that Bert ha himself faced uh, at the end of his time as a Jesuit priest, when apparently someone approached him and said, if you were to choose between people and principles, who would you choose? And he said, I would choose the people. Yes, and not the principles, and perhaps the work of a constellations facilitator such as yourself is to work on the individual level, or the individual family to bring greater consciousness to a reality where there's less hatred, uh, less less grievances and and thirst for revenge, so that the cycles don't perpetuate themselves, right? And hopefully, that expands from an individual to a collective. Right. I mean, that's where I'm doing my work now. I'm working at the individual level because this is the place where I have leverage and I'm changing people's lives uh, every day. Absolutely. Uh, working uh, with the heart and the ancestral field and then the, the, you know, the people that they are in contact with. They're in theory, this could all be extrapolated out, but the, the, they're just big forces, the forces of warfare the economics of warfare, the money that is to be made uh, through all this—it's—it's a—it's right. a big—it's um, uh, a big force, and it's uh, more than I can uh, intervene with. Uh, but at the human level, at the individual level, um, I can. Emily and I are going to be in Germany uh, in a few months. Uh, we're going to be working at a at a site that has a history fr from the Holocaust, actually near where my father was. Uh, after the war 
and we'll be working with individuals who come there uh, who are looking to find peace in their own soul, peace in their hearts around uh, whatever they're carrying uh, from their uh, their family lineage. Beautiful. And back to the forces uh, part, Dan, I recall uh, somebody had mentioned that Bert Hellinger said this, that wars, uh, they, they are from the gods. The gods are the ones that are the ones that want wars. And those gods are politics, religion, territory, ideologies, and all those gods demand sacrifice, human sacrifice. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, you, they have the strength of, uh, they have the strength of gods that, uh, the, the weapons manufacturers, the politicians who just want power, um, you know, we see today in the United States, uh, you know, very stark, this, uh, uh, this individual who j only is concerned with his own personal power and having this, uh, light shown on him. But there's something that it touches in the, the dark, hidden heart of so many people. They're his supporters um, kind of wish that for themselves. And they, they project their own secret inner wish of being, the, you know, the evil slave master uh, onto him. And he becomes a kind of salvation, a god uh, for them. And so th this... These are the people that gravitate towards political leadership. Um, this is uh, the same in Russia. Uh, it's the same in uh, Israel, in the United States, and in, uh, in many countries. Uh, I know the, the former president in Brazil. I'm not aware of the current president. I don't really know his background as well. Uh, but the former president also had uh, you know, this big ego stroke that uh, it was all about him. And, and his uh, wanting to be a kind of demigod. Uh, right. And it touched something in the, in the, the people that supported him. Uh, so it's, it's, um, it's around uh, the world I'm, and behind them are the people uh, that make money. Like a messianic type of movement, right? Yes. Right. That there's some yeah, messiah who's going to uh, uh, lead us uh, to some uh, type of, of glory. Uh, where uh, uh, people can, uh, you know, people who are disempowered can feel that they will be empowered again. Uh, it. And it's a big, uh, it's a big force. And I wonder if you could speak about that event at Fordham University at the time when Bert Hellinger was still coming to the United States doing these workshops. If there's any memories about that event that you could bring up in the context of what we're talking about perpetrator victim here? Uh, well, he did, you know, we had a big room of people. I, I knew a professor uh, at Fordham who was our Armenian American. And so she was very interested in these dynamics of victim perpetrator because of the Armenian genocide and uh, the official policy of the Turkish government that there was no Armenian genocide, right. that the uh, Turkey as a nation was innocent of the genocide and the Armenian people feel like they had been the victims of this genocide. And it's a hundred over a hundred years now. Uh, and that argument continues. This was, uh, around 2003, I think when, uh, uh, when, when I arranged this event, um, and, and so she promoted it on campus and there was a, a lot of people, faculty members and a lot of students and other people that, that knew Bert 
um, came and I have a, I have a recording of it. There's a video of it floating around. I haven't watched it in a long time, but he spoke, uh, he gave his kind of the talk that he was giving at that time about, um, uh, conscience, uh, guilt and innocence and the victim perpetrator bond. And then, yes, he, he did these kind of, uh, this piece where he, um, set up these two lines, uh, a line of victims and a line of perpetrators, and then uh, did nothing and just saw the movements. Uh, many people fell to the floor, uh, but the ones that, that stood very gradually came together and, and showed uh, that there's a bond of resolution that occurs uh, between victims and perpetrators, that there's, uh, if left uh, to occur, there's a movement of, um, of resolution. That, that even touches on the concept of forgiveness in constellations, right? Which is not your typical idea of forgiveness that we understand outside of it. Right. Uh, forgiveness in, in constellations, we don't, um, um, sometimes children who have, uh, have had difficult parents feel like they want to forgive their parents uh, for what they have done. Uh, and in the constellation space, if, uh, a client tries to forgive their parent, we usually, you know, divert that uh, because it, it tends to take people out of order that the one right. forgiving uh, ends up being above uh, the one who is being forgiven as if the, the good person is the forgiver and the bad right. person is the one being forgiven. And in constellations, uh, we're always looking uh, for balance in relationship. Uh, and so not to create this uh, disparity and hierarchy between a good one and a bad one. Uh, and there's, but there is a further movement uh, of forgiveness, which is really around acceptance. Uh, just a recognition right. that uh, these things occurred and everyone who participated in them were human. And for the most part, uh, any given human in any particular situation will behave more or less the same. So the victims, because of the conditions and the situations of, of their lives, uh, these things happen to them. And the perpetrators, because of what went on in their lives, uh, they behaved a certain way. But if you just took two individuals and you put them into the life of the other person, the innocent victim probably wouldn't still behave like an innocent victim if they were in the life of right. the one who's right, uh, depicted or identified as the perpetrator. They probably act more or less the same. And this okay. is a kind of a universal is most humans behave more or less the same given the same set of conditions. And so if we can accept that these are the things that happened and then somehow see beyond that there is a bigger life that we all share, that we are part of a larger human experience, that there is a consciousness around us and moving through us, uh, that we have uh, ancestors who are active within us and their consciousness in a way is influencing us, uh, right. that um, uh, we can create a kind of forgiveness, which is I'm no better than you and you are no worse than me. And, and what happened happened and, and look for a healing movement that allows 
uh, life to continue in a good way, that what life wants is uh, to grow and to bloom, and that uh, the movement towards forgiveness supports that. Got it. So in, in Bert's eye, he, he wasn't a pacifist. He didn't, he didn't believe that there would be such a thing as the end of wars in humanity is history in the future, right? He didn't have a, he wasn't sympathetic to, uh, to peacemaking. I don't know that he was making a prediction about the future. He probably wouldn't, wouldn't make that prediction. But if someone came to him and uh, similar to the a story about the, the father who abandoned the family, um, right. if someone comes to him and says, I'm a, I'm a person of peace, uh, what can I do to create peace in my life? Right. Uh, he would say, you know, look at your at how you're a perpetrator. Look at look at your your own violence. Uh, one of the things he he um, uh, he did is if there was a woman that came and sat down next to him who was very sweet, had like this really sweet face. He would say, oh, I can see you have a very <clears throat> sweet face. You must be filled with rage. Right. And he'd want to work with that. And and they would usually be a bit shocked to uh, to hear that. Um, I, I've said the same thing uh, with uh, some of my students, uh, the ones who were very sweet, uh, to uh, look inside that sweetness is uh, often a mask. Like a and, cover, yeah. Right. And that there's uh, something that's not being acknowledged. Uh, right. And to kind of make contact with the uh, inner perpetrator that is being hidden by the, 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 the innocent face and to, uh, to work with that. Uh, and so he wasn't a peace activist in that sense. Uh, but he was, he was, he was not a promoter of violence. I mean, he wasn't, well, of course. Uh, he wasn't a right. violent person. He's always he, looking for the healing movement. It just seems that he didn't really mince words and he was misunderstood yeah. many times because of that. Right. Right. Um, actually it, you know, at Fordham, I, I uh, reminded of this in the, when we, we were in the car traveling over uh, to the event, he was always fearless, not mincing words and just saying, you know, what is there. And I told him not to do that. I, uh, he's not an easy person to kind of, you know, instruct or tell what to do. He didn't take kindly to that generally, but I said, you know, you have to, um, I just want to tell you, uh, you know, don't be fearless and don't embarrass or humiliate the host that this is a professor at this university. She's invited her colleagues here to see this great man and you got to behave yourself so you can, do your demonstration and say your things. But when you get to that point that you are just going to like blow it all up, don't do that. Don't, don't have the next day that she's confronted by colleagues that say to her, why did you bring this guy here? Right. And, and he didn't, he was actually very well behaved. I don't know how much it was. I think I had, I think I had an impact on him. I kind of read him the, the riot act before the riot. <laughs> Uh, but for the most part, I mean, the reason I said that is he would always do that. He would always come up with some provocative statement that just shook everybody to the core and left people um, just really questioning what had happened. And he did it for effect. It was um, 
was positive in some times. And I saw him do it other times where I really cringed and felt like right. he, had, uh, he had gone too far. So it was a therapeutic movement with the best of intentions that he had in mind, obviously, but not everybody was ready to take that much therapy in one blow kind of thing. Was that? Yes. It always, I mean, he was always doing it with the intention to uh, reveal something that was hidden that needed to be seen. Precisely. Yeah. Um, but there were times, um, you know, he would say to a woman that had an abortion, he would look and right in her face and say, you are a murderer. And he'd say it in front of an audience with, you know, 200 people sitting there. So, I mean, there's a truth in it. I mean, if you look at, at a foundational level that abortion is a taking of life. It is sure. uh, a destroying a life. So there's, there's truth to it. And there's probably uh, something that, that, that woman needed to face that she was denying to herself. Yes. And it's not the right setting for it, you know, to right. do it in a public place uh, in front of an audience and to say it with um, uh, such a stark uh, and provocative way, I found going too far. For me, it's it. going too far. Got it. Got it. Because it seems like the spirit of his observations had a lot to do with the fact of seeing people, seeing ancestors, seeing the perpetrators, seeing the ones that are excluded. That in and of itself is a big part of the healing right? In constellation yes. work. Yes. He was, um, I mean, his perception was exceptional and his understanding of these dynamics was exceptional. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, quibbling with some of his behaviors and some of the things he did sure. in certain settings, but you know, I'm living the teachings every day. I mean, what I learned from him and the revolutionary perspective that he had, uh, was, uh, it's, you know, foundational for, for my life going forward. And so I, I subscribe to uh, him as a man, as a therapist, as a teacher, and for, for what he was able to bring forward. Uh, and the criticisms are, you know, around the edges of, you know, he sure. made this statement here or there. He did some things that, that I think he got a little carried away in certain places. Uh, but uh Overall, the, the 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 foundation is around blind love and enlightened love. That in blind love, people only are looking through their own eyes, and they tend to be looking through the eyes uh, of their childhood self, their child self. Okay. And they're, they're seeing the the world through the lens of the moment when they were five years old, ten years old, fifteen, whatever it was, when they realized they were on their own. And that, right. that their parents weren't going to protect them. Their, their brother, who they thought they trusted, has betrayed them or somebody else betrayed them or someone died or some catastrophe occurred. And they have this feeling, I have to do it myself now. I have to, I have to survive on my own. And in that moment, there was a truth to it. But you extended out 30 years. And now that person is, you know, in their 30s and 40s, and they're still looking at the world through their five-year-old self and still reacting uh, from a five-year-old's mind. Um, I mean, people, we do it all the time. You could just look at the foods you don't like. What, whatever food you don't like, you bit into when you were five and you spat it out. And now right. the, the next 40 years, you still won't bite. You still don't like it. Uh, right. This is how, how we do with everything. 
um, relationships and love and our sense of self, all these things. And so enlightened love is being able to see through the eyes of others, to be able to see ourselves through the eyes of others, to be able to see the world through the eyes of others. We can move our mind's eye anywhere we want, and we can look through the lens of someone else's eyes, and it uh, brings us into a much fuller sense of our own humanity. And, and, and when we've become fully alive as human beings, both in our body and our heart and our minds and our spirits, uh, then we are able to live according to an evolutionary blueprint, which is uh, far more expansive than our little five-year-old, you know, feeling like, oh, no one's going to take care of me. I got to do it myself. That's uh, a kind of blind love. And this enlightened love is, is much more expansive. Do you think that that also is part of what fuels these personalities that strive for power and 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 massive control that in some ways they're basically replicating their five-year-old selves and wanting to save the world, so to speak, and wanting to take over this or that place or those peoples? Mm -hmm. uh, we did uh, a couple of years ago in my uh, science, myth, and magic class, we did a, uh, a collective constellation for Donald Trump uh, before the 2020 election. Um, and in that constellation, we could really see how strong the entanglement is with his mother. That mm. if you, if you listen to him speak, it's the voice of his mother speaking. He's identified with the father, the landlord and the businessman. And that's kind of the, what he presents to the world. That's how he wants to be seen. The external. Right. But if you really listen to the, the syntax and the, the way that he speaks, he's speaking with his mother's voice and his mother's was a victim of the, the uh, Scottish landlord. She was, she was a, a victim of what's known in Scotland as the Highland clearances, which was uh, when a movement of landlords displaced uh, by the tens and hundreds of thousands of uh, the Scottish people who were, that at the time were the most magical and, and spiritually oriented right. Gaelic people uh, that had existed. They were uh, lived with the land, the plants, the animals with spirit and the, their leaders were custodians of the people and the land uh, and had been for many centuries. And they were, um, corrupted by the English, by the, the English um, mercenaries and turned from custodial kings into landlords and they displaced uh, the people. They recognized that the land uh, generated more cash when it was populated with sheep than with people mm -hmm. living there who were sustaining themselves. And so the United States is filled with Scottish refugees, the right. whole deep South, the whole uh, red state uh, constituents base, a large part are descendants of these Scottish uh, refugees. And uh, Donald Trump's mother, Mary Trump, uh, was also a Scottish ref refugee living in, in Scotland uh, before she came to New York. And they hated landlords. Mm. Um, and when Donald Trump came back to visit his mother's hometown, they, they would have nothing to do with him. 
because she had married a landlord and he was a, a slumlord in New York City. And and he was uh, shut out. People wouldn't even talk to him uh, because they felt betrayed by her marrying a landlord and then uh, becoming a slumlord uh, in New York City. Uh, I don't know how <laughs> I don't know how I got into this story, uh, but uh, he is um, all all of this, all this bravado and this domination is is all coming through the victim perpetrator bond of his mother and his mother's family uh from and being, from being expelled from their home in scotland right and so he is a child of a landlord and a woman whose family despised landlords and he is trying to mediate so at once he's a big landlord and the other side through his mother's voice he speaks as the voice of the people He's kind of right. speaking to the to the displaced, uh, impoverished uh, descendants of the Highland Clearances. This is his voting block right. uh, in these red states. And he's speaking to them like he's one of them through his mother's voice. And then he is also behaving like a slumlord who is just right. in it for themselves. That the, His grandfather was owned brothels. So his the original family fortune was made from brothels. So the you know the most exploitative, uh, exploitative of men and women, uh, and that was the base of the family fortune. And then it became real estate in New York, and um, now he has this persona where he is uh, both the rich uncle who's going to take care of everybody. And he is also the enraged voice of the displaced. Uh, and right. he uh, feels into that perfectly. So anything comes out of his mouth, uh, it doesn't matter. The fact that it's all lies is because he's feeling the black heart. He's just with the black heart uh, and speaking in a way that resonates with the black heart of his constituents. And nobody wants to speak to them. They are feel unseen and unheard, but he has their he has their number, and and through his mother and her lineage is able to connect with them in a really deep way. And the black heart image is one of grief, uh, a black heart of of rage. What is that? Yeah, uh, let me feel into it. I I'm surprised I used that term. Just give me a second. No problem. It's the feeling of the ones who were were had their lives destroyed and now they want their vengeance. Right. The, the black in mourning. The, we are mourning a, a tragedy, a loss. That's why our heart is black at the moment, like my T-shirt. And so we need to we need to vanquish. We need to find some type of a revenge in order to appease the heart. Right. That, right. I like the January 6th rioters. You know, we are going to storm the Capitol. We are taking right. our country back. So it's been stolen from us. And right. now we're going to come take it back and we're going to attack the seat of power and we're going to take it back for the people. So it's both violent and vengeful, but it also has this feeling of we were stolen from. Right. In many ways, it is seeing through the eyes of the child that was hurt 
or first felt betrayed and trying to mimic that child's heroic magical thinking that i can do this i can solve for my whole family i can take care of this let's storm the capital or let's do something else along those yes lines, right it's a very uh childish uh uh right it's like an adolescent a young adolescence uh feeling and it um but it kind of mimics uh the naivete of the peacemaker as well like right. uh, you know i'm going to go live in bethlehem and that's going to do something you know uh didn't do a damn thing it was a great experience for me uh right. personally and for the people i met but it uh uh it was um i i thought at the time that the these forces of war were built up from small individual movements and that if you changed enough at the individual level, it would be reflected uh, in the collective level. But at the collective level, um, there it has an existing power structure, which is pretty inoculated against uh, the voice of the people, you know, people protesting in the street and all this stuff. Uh, it doesn't really penetrate through to um, the ones who are profiting and uh, doesn't s slow them down in any way. That's why perhaps the best way to continue doing the good work is individually. And as you're touching hearts individually, it, it touches on family systems individually. And that's all we can ever hope for at the end of the day, right? I, I, you know, I, I think so. I feel we are, we actually have our soul uh, and our body, and we have this, our soul has an opportunity to have a human experience. Yeah, yeah. And, and that human experience is for the soul. And it's not really so much about changing the, the planet or changing the fate right. of humanity. Uh, I, I, it turns out I'm not here to change the fate of humanity, uh, but I am here to support individuals in coming to alignment with their soul's purpose and uh, to heal their hearts, to create alchemy mm -hmm. in their heart mm -hmm. and to uh, further and kind of enhance their human experience. Uh, as, and I'm as, good at uh, that. Right, indeed you are. And I found I, something I'm I, good I at. I can vouch for that. Uh, as as what the, the quote that we have in our channel, Spirit Reflections by Teilhard de Chardin that says, we're not uh, humans, we're not, humans living a spiritual experience we are spirits living a human experience right yes i agree with that that's uh um i've i'm become just very interested in uh the body and the heart and the mind and the soul and harmonizing those uh, at uh, the individual level and then that individual will then influence uh you know, some or many or a lot of people. Uh, and that has a, 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 you know, a ripple effect. Yeah. But um, ultimately, our souls and our bodies have a very short time here on Earth. The Earth is old, and it's going to be here for a long time. And we have this uh, short time to experience uh, uh, being human. And uh, so I'm, I'm most interested now in the people that come into a circle with me to enhance uh, that experience for them and to um, heal the uh, the entanglements with the victims and perpetrators of the past that are active in their bodies, that are kind of messing up their human experience and connecting 
uh, with those through quantum pathways and to uh, release the souls of past generations that are trapped in the body uh, and to be able to receive nourishment uh, for a good life. Beautiful. And the more we understand about quantum physics and quantum mechanics, the more we realize that there is no such thing as past, present and future. So that when we disentangle someone through a work such as yours, it reverberates both in the past and in the future and especially in the present. Right. Right. The uh, we have the two vectors. So our bodies, you know, we live and breathe in the present moment. But the information, the quantum information field uh, is is of. Uh, independent of space-time. So in a way, everything that's ever happened and ever will happen is available to us in every moment through the quantum information field. And we can access it uh, through this part of our body and actually through all the cells in our body. Uh, we are quantum uh, beings as well as uh, mechanical beings. Uh, th this is the the... Uh, you know, the main finding of quantum physics is that there's a realm of actuality, the real world that we live in of substance. And this came first and then this happened and that happened to cause and effect. Uh, and then there is a second domain of potentiality, which is the information field, which is where uh, everything everywhere all at once. And right. our bodies have access to both dimensions at all times. And for the most part, people are only in contact with actuality, uh, not so much with uh, possibility. So part of my work in, in doing this healing is to bring in the resources of possibility to uh, uh, support, uh, you know, the, the body's uh, existence. Perfect. And for that, I thank you very much for being in circle here with me on Spirit Reflections, Dan. And for those that have watched this, uh, check out seeingwithyourheart.com, Dan's website. Also take a look at his book, which is beautiful. I carry you in my heart, Family Constellations in Prison. The information on where to find them is in the description below. Dan, big hug to you. Yeah, you, so much. you too. You too, Frederico. It's great talking to you. Uh, I really love talking to you. I really appreciate uh, your chance, uh, the chance to have this conversation. And, and uh, uh, you know, I know we'll be, uh, we'll be talking again soon. Absolutely. And I'll see you, everybody, in the next episode on Spirit Reflections. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.